It's episode 90 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Sherry Ferguson. Dive in the Podcast is a weekly all about diving podcast for everyone. Whether you explore the oceans as a snorkeler, scuba diver, free diver, or tech diver, Dive In has something for you. The show is filled with diving news, feature interviews with guests from around the world, interesting dive topics, ocean advocacy, and much more. Visit DiveInPod.com to find out about the show, past guests, and our Patreon. Hi everyone, I'm April, and on Dive Girls Around the World, I'm going to be telling you about Scuba Sarah. I'm Nick, and on Think Blue, we'll talk microplastics on the brain. Hello, I'm Justin. I'm Amit, and we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. Before we start today's episode, we'd like to thank you, the listeners. Thanks for tuning in every week. Your support encourages us to keep going and make a bigger and better podcast. What did you all think about last week's episode with Derek Smith? It was a blast. Um, you know, I when we book guests, like you book them based on a little bit of knowledge, uh, either through a recommendation from somebody else or something you've read about them online. Um, but yeah, total surprise. Didn't know what to expect. So much uh, fun, fun energy, so much information. Yeah, so, so much cool stuff about scientific diving. Uh, did not expect that. Yeah, it was uh, it was a great interview. Uh, Derek was uh, was a lot of fun to chat with. Um, he's practically Canadian and mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. lives 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 in practically Canada. So you know, we uh, we give him bonus points there. And uh, yeah, just overall great chat. One of one of those guests I want to have back again in the future. And a guy that we determined could definitively throw on a rebreather and scooter and make it over here without ever having to declare anything customs wise. Mm-hmm. So I mean. <laughs> Right there. Derek, come on over. We're waiting. If CBSA is not listening, please don't listen. They are not listening. (laughs) And if they're listening, they probably don't care. You heard it here. I was super bummed to to miss that episode because I was powerless. Literally Oh yeah, you were powerless to do anything because you were literally powerless. I literally had no power. It was like the worst thing ever. Came home from work, no power. Thanks, Nova Scotia Power. (laughs) <laughs> shout out to Nova Scotia shout Power. Shout out to Nova Scotia Power. <laughs> it's a not. It's not those a dividends, shout out. America. <laughs> That's right. But I, I was thinking we could take Amit's retirement fund money from the podcast and you know buy some data plants, satellite data plants, and some backup <laughs> generators. You know, oh, yeah. terrible. What is Amit's a terrible idea? Uh, yeah, we should idea. set up all of our places with uh, with generators and uh, auto switch over generators and some uh, yeah some backup satellite data plans. We get some Starlink online. We'll be good to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, this uh, you know like I like I think the three of you could just contribute to that portion of it. We'll just leave my <laughs> pension stuff alone, and then we'll just carry on with that. Oh, okay. uh, I'm getting old. I, I'm the oldest guy here. What can I tell you? I I need to be able to think about my retirement. So I don't have a choice. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we'll bring the we'll yes. bring the satellite for me and Amit for Bahamas, so we can record the podcast and the now, nice. now you're talking. Boat. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope I, I like that. You, you have you've planned to take a day out of your cruise to go back to shore to do the podcast. I just hope that's, <laughs> that's a known expectation over here. Ooh, uh, yeah, yeah, April. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, we talked We're, about that. Mm-hmm. We'll bring a tape recorder, and me and Amit will record our own special segment at sea. That's right. And then we'll send it back to you to play in the episode. 
Uh, I'm going to start looking up uh, satellite data uh, internet <laughs> service providers. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you can rent these things that go with you anywhere around the world, and they have okay. satellite data. And uh, if it's not too expensive, I say we chip in. And Tonight, we're speaking to Sherry Ferguson. Sherry Ferguson is a professional diver with over two decades of experience. She's the former diving safety officer at both the University of British Columbia and the University of Victoria. She's a trained commercial diver, chamber operator, as well as a recreational, technical, and rebreather instructor. Sherry is a director of and instructor at the Environmental Medicine and Physiology Unit at Simon Fraser University, as well as a current secretary of the Canadian Undersea and Hyperbaric Medicine Association. Does that work? I think so. I'm sure I can hack something together. Do <laughs> you, to you, you want me to do it over? Um, I mean, why don't you I'll just do another? I'll do shot. another pass. Okay. Yeah, do another take. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Sherry. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So we'll officially start your interview in a moment here. Um, but before that, uh, have you ever seen a mammoth tusk? Uh, not in real life. Like I've seen them in museums, but uh, uh, I don't know if those were real or replicas. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, researchers have recently announced the discovery of an ancient mammoth tusk found 10,000 feet uh, deep in the ocean. ROV pilot Randy Prickett and scientist Stephen Haddock from the Monterey Bay uh, Aquarium Research Institute were exploring the ocean floor around 10,000 feet uh, and about 185 miles off the coast of California back in 2019 when they made the discovery. The Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute expedition retrieved about a one-meter section of the tusk from deep sea, and they didn't quite know what they were looking at at first. They kind of thought it was an elephant tusk. Um, and they announced uh, very recently that with the help of other, other researchers from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the University of Michigan, that they had determined the tusk actually belonged to Columbia mammoths that they believed to be about 100,000 years old. Columbia mammoths were not only one of the largest mammoths on the planet, but they also had one of the biggest tusks, uh, measuring at around five meters in length. And the species is believed to have gone extinct about 10,000 years ago. So uh, it's kind of cool that, you know, you go 185 miles off the coast, 10,000 feet deep, and you'd find something like that at the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is, what was it doing down there? I know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't know how they would ever find that out. Uh, maybe, maybe it was like a whale fall died, floated around, and sank to the bottom, or maybe the oh, ocean yeah. wasn't where it was 10,000 years ago, or 100,000 mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah, so interesting stuff from the bottom of the ocean. That's it for today's news. It's time to dive in with Sherry Ferguson. So where are you from, Sherry? Well, I was born in Toronto, actually, but uh, moved out to Vancouver uh, in when I was uh, 23, uh, originally to come here to go to university for a few years, but then uh, I'm still here. Well, I'm still at university, I guess, so that, that <laughs> validates why I'm still here. <laughs> um, and what was your first memory of the water? Uh, well, the ocean was my reason for moving here, but it wasn't because of the underwater ocean at that time. It was just the mountains and oceans, and I just knew I needed to be closer to nature, and, and I absolutely had to come out here. And it wasn't actually... Um, the, my calling for Vancouver, but it, it became the reason I never left. That's very cool. And uh, I mean, I think anybody that's ever seen, you know, the mountains out, uh, out that way in the world, like the Rockies, and then you, you get a chance to look at that ocean, and, you know, connect those two dots. It, it seems like an incredible place to be. So I can't imagine why, why anyone wouldn't want to be there, but, uh, 
while you were there, you said you didn't come out for the purpose of uh, the underwater world, but eventually you did get an interest in scuba diving. What sort of sparked that as you were going through? Uh, well, I was uh, actually on my honeymoon. I was uh, down in a, an island called Dominica in the Caribbean. And uh, I was there for a few weeks hanging out and uh, Rastafarian came up to me and said, hey, Mon, want to try scuba diving? And I mm-hmm. thought, ah. Yeah, hold my beer. Let's go. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, with the very next day, I was on a boat reading a brochure. Uh, I think it was a Naui brochure on how to dive and, um, you know, jumped into the ocean, you know, waist deep water and uh, had to clear a mask and recover a regulator so that we could dive. And uh, I think I sucked up half the ocean and he kept saying, come on, man, in true to nose, out true to mouth. And I was <laughs> going the wrong. Uh, no, I guess he was telling me the other way and I was doing it that way. I was going in through the nose. And um, so, yeah, I was, uh, I was sucking back the ocean. Um, finally, I did it right uh, after a few attempts and he said, okay, let's go. And, and I was terrified that, um, uh, you know, what if water got into my mask and I and I coughed and sputtered and I can't stand up now. And, uh, you know, my life was in this guy's hands and he was ahead of me and I'm just trying to keep up. Um, but at, simultaneously, I'm looking around and I'm seeing these giant sponges and colorful fish and uh, barrel sponge that were so big, it looked like you could jump inside and, and it, it would take your whole body inside of the barrel sponge. And I just knew I had to... Um, come back. And, and as the boat pulled up to the dock uh, at the hotel that it was connected to, and I saw all these divers getting off their boats and hanging up their wetsuits on their balcony railings and everything, I thought, that's that's me on my next vacation. I'm going to come back and I'm going to be a diver. And that that was really it. I came back to Vancouver and went to my local dive shop and said, uh, put me in your next lessons. And uh, I never looked back from there. It, it became my um, obsession and my passion and, and eventually my career. Very cool. That's a super awesome story. So like now you mentioned it became your passion and then, you know, from there became your, your career. Uh, Tell us a bit about that journey and how, how it progressed from that place where, you know, you're sort of this uh, wide eyed um, new novice to scuba diving. And then you transition through where now you're highly, you know, highly recognized uh, dive professional. Yeah, well, um, I could say that I had excellent instruction. Um, so when I got into the pool, I had no problem with those skills that I was struggling with in the ocean. It was I was far more focused. You know, uh, it's calm being in a swimming pool as opposed to you know being in the ocean and, and knowing that you're about to dive underneath. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't struggle at all through the open water lessons. As a matter of fact, I, I found it quite natural for me to be underwater and found uh, you know just diving in general um came came quite easily to me to to grasp uh, all the skills that you needed and master them and uh i was really lucky because my home at the time was on the water so i was able to uh get people to come over to my house to go diving because we could just dive literally out of my backyard um and so i think i completed well over 100 dives in my first year because i was just going every weekend and taking every course that i could you know advancing through at that time it was the paddy uh you know that had that little flow chart and i was i was mapping my way through that flow chart on how i'd get uh to to uh to the top of the pyramid i guess and um uh, so after about a hundred dives, I became a, a dive master and, uh, 
you know, was was eager to work for free uh, just to be around other divers and, and see them see things for the first time, because it really kind of brings that excitement to you as well. And, and um, I did that for a long time and, and then decided that um, it was costing me a lot of money. Uh, to, uh, you know, buying all the gear, going on all the trips. And, and even though I could get, you know, free air fills and discounts with being a dive master, I, I really um, saw all my disposable income going into diving. And I, I kind of had this epiphany that I, I needed to stop spending money on diving and ha- start having diving pay me. And so that's when I decided to become an instructor and, um, and, uh, and then got more connected with the dive shop and eventually had a, a partnership in owning a dive shop. So um, I, I started with the recreational route in teaching and um, and then uh, just through uh, in the early days of diving where there really wasn't a lot of oversight when it came to scuba diving and working out here in British Columbia in the, in the uh, early 90s. And so uh, it, it was easy to get jobs um, to go under a boat and change a zinc or work on a dock and not actually have your your proper commercial certification. We could just kind of do them on the side and people would call the dive shop saying, Oh, I need a diver. Can I hire a diver? So I'd be like, yeah, you can hire me. Um, so I started doing that kind of work and, uh, and working in the film industry as well, doing water safety. Um, and eventually our, our work safe, uh, BC here kind of said, you know, we're going to put together a, a formal recognition for diving um, as an occupation, including scuba diving. And um, they had a pathway for those that were already doing it to um, show what kind of uh, work they'd done, what experience they had, um, and do a prior learning assessment and decide how much of the course you needed to complete in order to get your certification. So I went through that process and upgraded to get my occupational ticket, which um, then kind of cut out some of the competition and, and really excelled my career in the commercial diving side um, because there was there were less qualified people taking uh, less unqualified people mm-hmm. taking the jobs and and few of us that were doing it um, and so I I was doing that and simultaneously uh, at that time I'd I'd left um, running a dive shop so I'd I'd left that to my partner and I went on to um, work with building dry suits selling dry suits working for many of the manufacturers uh, of dive gear as a sales rep and also working with TDI SDI because at at that time um, they decided to launch the recreational the SDI side and um, and I was already a TDI instructor so and one of the early adopters also of the Drager, the early Drager Atlantis, and then the Drager Dolphin. Um, I was I was teaching on those units, so it was just natural for me to work with TDI SDI as well. So uh, I kind of started a my first, um, well, I guess my second business, but my first one on my own uh, was uh, working with the training agencies and, and many of the gear manufacturers in the technical, specifically the technical side of diving. Um, which I was quite interested in because it was my challenge and I was learning it. I was still advancing and taking courses and qualifying um, to teach some of those courses. And so um, that that kind of evolved that way. Uh, I'm trying to think where it went to from there. Oh, my gosh. Um, I, 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 we did some um, herring row surveys and different things. I got involved with scientists as a diver and, um, and uh, eventually had a conversation with Phil Newton which led to me working with him uh, at Diver Magazine and uh, Newco, and um, 
and uh, was uh, that was in the initial stages where he was just acquiring Diver Magazine at that time, and was working with him. And uh, through that job, um, discovered the position at the University of British Columbia that was looking for a diving safety officer. And at that point, I really had kind of a well-rounded technical occupational, I understood gear, I understood teaching. And so uh, when I applied for the job, it was, I was a good fit. And I, I went into the university uh, settings from there, uh, originally as a diving safety officer. So I didn't really have a clear path, other than I knew I wanted to be connected to diving, I wanted opportunities to be diving, and I needed to make a living and I wanted to do it that way. Um, and, uh, and I think it you know, just recognizing opportunities and, and taking opportunities when they presented themselves, it just kind of evolved that way to lead me into a university setting and working with um, scientists, which um, eventually led to the job uh, working with the chamber at SFU, where um, then I really discovered my passion was diving physiology and understanding uh, the body and how it responds to the underwater world. Very cool. It sounds like you have done a little bit of everything in your career, which is super cool. I have. Like everywhere, just from doing your Discover Scuba on your honeymoon all the way to now. But what I'm curious about is what did you do before? What did you do before you knew what scuba diving was? What was your career beforehand? Well, my first job... Um, we, you know, and I was trying to decide do what what to go to school for and what I should do. Um, and I knew I wanted to travel. so that was that was my original passion was traveling. and that's one of the reasons I think I like diving so much is I got to do a lot of traveling. Um, so uh, my my idea was I would go for this short course. I don't even think it was a year. I can't remember, maybe like six months or nine months or something like that um, to learn to be a travel agent. And this was in the days before for the World Wide Web, <laughs> and you had to actually go to a travel agent to have them print your ticket or book a hotel, or because uh, it was really difficult in those days to to even be able to find hotels. Um, and so I trained as a travel agent um, mainly because I wanted the travel perks, and um, I, very likely had I not been in that job, this whole diving career may ne never have happened. Uh, because the reason I was in Dominica was I had traveled so much. Um, in those days, you know, airline tickets were like candy. They were just throwing them everywhere. <laughs> you know, how about a weekend in Amsterdam? Okay, fly to Amsterdam <laughs> Friday after work, come back Sunday before work. And, um, and, and you'd go on these fam trips where you'd have to see 21 hotels in a day and things like that. Um, and so I decided I wanted to go on a honeymoon someplace that was off the beaten track. And in those days, they had this book called The Gold Book, and it was all the hotels in the Caribbean. And I looked for the island that had the least amount of hotels, and Dominica <laughs> had the least amount of hotels out of all the islands in the Caribbean. And I said, that's where I'm going. And um, and so I guess thanks to that travel career and wanting to kind of get off the beaten path, <laughs> I, I ended up in Dominica and ended up diving. That's pretty awesome. Um, you, you've also uh, mentioned, you know, technical and, and rebreather diving. And considering the time that you, when you were diving, um, you know, that, that would have been pretty unique then. What led you to kind of venture down there into, into rebreather and technical? Ah, well, it was, uh, it, it was um, there was a dive shop in town here. It was the first um, 
technical dive shop, a fellow by the name of Frank Zarek opened it up. And um, he was the first one to to bring uh, mixed gas, nitrox, uh, which was a really long course in those days. I took it through him with uh, Andy. Uh, was the dive agency, and it was a it was a big long course to get certified as a nitrox diver, um, and uh, and then got interested in in helium trimix, and he was the first one that I saw bring a rebreather uh, into the diving scene, and so he was my my very first rebreather uh, instructor, um, and uh, he he had trained a, he came and offered to train a bunch of us that were teaching at the commercial dive school at that time. Um, so that's, that was my first introduction. And then when I was working for TDI, um, they asked if I had had any interest in rebreathers and I said, well, yeah, I actually, I dive a rebreather and, and, um, and, and then the opportunity came for me to become an instructor with that unit, which later down the road led to, uh, fully closed rebreathers and working with other rebreather organizations. That's, that's pretty but, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was quite fun in those days, uh, in the early days of you know, kind of introducing to people what it would be like to be almost bubble free. It was it was semi close, so you know, there's a few bubbles, but it was it was very close to being bubble free. And um, between that and um, you know, diving with the mixed gas and and doubles and pony bottles and and all those kind of things, we were really kind of. At, at that stage, the industry was really kind of at the early adopters, I, you call mm-hmm. it in business. These are the, the people, the, the small percentage that come on early, and that was the crowd that I was in with. And then, of course, you have that big chasm that you have to cross before it becomes mainstream. And I think we're finally seeing this becoming mainstream now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Really at that front end kind of uh, place. Yeah. Cool. You, you mentioned that you've um, you've had roles as a diving safety officer uh, both at UBC and the University of Victoria and and, and you, you've kind of mentioned how you got into that what what did those role entail those roles entail and I was kind of curious was it also a little bit like the early days of kind of the commercial ticket where things were still being sort of figured out at the time um, well no actually it was pretty well established by the time I came in so my um, my the, the folks that were in there ahead of me really did are already carve the the path here in Canada. Um, there was, uh, you know, a separation, a clear separation before I came into um, scientific diving um, to separate the occupational, which was under the CSA Z275 standard um, from um, the scientific diving, which was the formation of the Canadian Association for Underwater Science. So I came in and they were already well-established and, and separate. Um, but, um, you know, within the um, first couple of years of coming into the scene as, a, as, an, as a, a diving safety officer, I got involved with the Canadian Association for Underwater Science and actually uh, very early took on a position as president of that association. So that really got me involved in, in it. Um, uh, a, a diving safety officer. So a lot of people wonder what that job entails. So really what you're doing is you're, you're ensuring that the dive team that's going to go out and do research is going to come home at the end of the day. Um, you're, you're looking at what their project is and how they're going to do it, ensuring that everybody on the team is adequately trained and um, capable of doing the job. And you're ensuring that um, their dive plan is going to meet the standards as they're set out so that both the university liability and 
also the safety of the divers is, is met. So you're not really there so much to um, question the validity or the scientific merit of what they're doing. That's that's a whole other uh, process that they go through to get their funding or or to get their animal care per- permits. Um, you're really involved in in the safety side. So my background in in being an instructor and and more specifically in being a technical instructor where where you have a lot of checks and and uh, far more um, consideration of things going wrong really uh, helped me be a, good at the job of being a, a diving safety officer because it's really a job of ensuring that risk is minimized. That's very cool. Yeah, we, actually, we spoke to uh, to Derek Smith last week, uh, the president of the American Academy of Underwater Sciences, and I think uh, you know he discussed that that particular niche of being able to uh, to really look at the safety components and trying to standardize them so that. In fact, there was a governing agency that that looked at like how do we train scientific divers and ensure that they go uh, forward and then you know come home safe. And so it, you know, obviously, I think speaks to the ability that that you have and obviously the experience that you brought to the table with uh, with all your instructing. So a uh, very very cool piece there. I, I did have as I was thinking through this piece here, um, all of these experience and you know your commercial diving experience, your instructing dive in, in diving, your safety officer. Uh, experiences uh, eventually led you into this uh, this field of hyperbarics, and how would you say that those experiences helped shape that path uh, as you entered the field of hyperbarics? Well, I, I guess initially um, I had the skills to understand um, the system. So, so you know, I, I had trained as a chamber operator. Um, as a, an occupational diver, um, but also understanding high pressure systems from, you know, being a technical diver and, and being involved running a dive store. Um, really a hyperbaric chamber is like an oversized dive cylinder. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're putting air in and you're taking air out. The only difference is you're putting a person inside that dive cylinder. So you've got a lot more responsibility. Um, but really the, the system, it's, it's regulators, it's, it's, uh, high pressure systems, it's intermediate pressure stepping down with regulators. It's uh, oxygen cleaning. So uh, uh, all these skills that I had learned as, as a, a diver and as a co- occupational and commercial diver um, applied to being a chamber operator and, and running uh, a chamber. So the technical side, I had those skills coming in. Um, and I, I was always, because I taught the technical diving, I was always very um, strong on, on the physics and the, and the physiology side because you're teaching it all the time. So I understood the system quite well. Um, I think what solidified me staying with the unit and it was my passion for the, for, for the unknown side of it. I had a keen interest on, you know, why do some people get bent and others don't? Uh, are women really at more risk of decompression sickness? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, understanding why I was seeing people pass away that were very experienced divers from, um, apparent drownings and and it just didn't make sense why they were drowning so you know there's something else going on that's preventing them from safely getting to the surface and so that really kind of drove my curiosity to want to work hard to study and become a scientist that that uh, looks at the physiology side of things so so how did you sort of transition from you know being a professional diver uh, and and a safety officer to to science like how like how would you describe that that transition uh oh well it 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 wasn't a small feat uh it it took a lot of um 
determination that that I, I could see myself in that role. You really have to be able to get up in the morning and say, no, that's what I see my life as so that you can um, continue to to work your day job, which for me, the day job was at, at the lab running the chamber for other scientists or, or industry um, while simultaneously uh, studying, um, which, uh, you know, I, I had some uh, undergrad courses, but I hadn't actually finished an undergrad. So I had to finish the undergrad before I could even apply to get into graduate school and, um, and then complete a, a graduate degree while juggling home and, and work at the same time. So um, I, I think it's, it's discipline. It's having discipline, self-discipline, and, and really seeing yourself there. Because if you can't envision yourself being somewhere, so whether that be, you know, as a, you know, where you want to go with diving or free diving or, or where, whatever it is that you see, want to do, if you can't envision yourself in that position, then you can't get the self-discipline to, to work that hard. So uh, it was definitely hard work, a lot of studying, a lot of learning, a lot of teaching myself things that I didn't know in order to learn what I needed to learn. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sitting in class with people that were much, much younger than me and and much brighter than me because they were uh, better memories than me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it it uh, you know, did I ever think about giving up? Absolutely. Sometimes I wondered what I was doing, but then I I also couldn't envision myself doing anything else. So that's what kept me going. So I guess that leads me into my question a little bit, because I'm wondering if there was a moment that you realized that hyperbaric research was going to be your full-time career. Um, I think it would have been, I guess, really realizing it was when I was finally accepted into graduate school um, and then realized I, I can actually do this. Um, I, I don't know if I had like an aha moment, like, this is it. Um, I'm I'm for sure doing this. Um, But uh, I I did have some obstacles along the way. Um, Things that that come up that you think would be enough for someone to just say, okay, this isn't going to work. So I I was given the position as director of the unit based on a, a business plan that I presented to the school, which then later went to the dean and then later went to the vice president of research and worked its way up through the university and kind of said, this is my vision for the, for the unit on how it can survive um, and, and what it could produce. And um, they gave me the green light to go ahead. Uh, at that point, I don't think I really thought that my career would be in research. Um, but uh, the result of me getting the green light to go ahead was some folks didn't like that decision and kind of stepped away saying, well, then you don't have my support. And suddenly I realized, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I need to um, ensure that I can do this without anybody's su- support. So I, I, that, that's kind of what gave me the determination, like, well, I better get this degree because if the folks with the degree are going to walk away from me, I, I guess I need to to do this. So, um, a little bit of stubbornness there. And, and, uh, as, and the more I learned, the more I was, the more curious I am. Um, so that curiosity is still there. I think that curiosity helps you get through the monotonous times of crunching numbers and things like that. Mm -hmm. Writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's certainly no question about it. Uh, nobody achieves anything without that level of hard work and dedication. Um, and I think that led you to a place where you're currently the secretary of the Canadian Undersea and Hyperbaric Medicine Association. 
So can you tell us uh, what the CUHMA does? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we call it Kuma. Yeah, <laughs> or, but, yeah I didn't want to misspeak which, on that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is also uh, a, a kind of a tip back to military rebreather diving when they had a Kuma unit. So, yeah. um, and uh, so I, I got involved with them actually very early on um, because before I even joined the lab, I had gone to some of the Great Lakes chapter meetings for the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Association. And I, I did mm. that just out of curiosity because they held a, a diver's day and they would present dive research. And so I, I, I'd gone just out of curiosity and, and that really kind of sparked me like, wow, this is really cool. The people are doing this kind of research. Um, so once I, I was at SFU and had the opportunity to go to more of the, the meetings for the UHMS, which is the, the U.S., um, equivalent of what Kuma is. Um, uh, we at that time it was discovered that um, the UHMS was actually against its own bylaws by having a Canadian chapter. They weren't allowed to have Canadian chapters. Something to do with their tax laws. They could they all their chapters had to be within the U.S. And so um, a lot of folks um, think that the Great Lakes chapter. Um, became a Canadian chapter out of some kind of um, disgruntled move with the UHMS, but it actually is not the fact. We, we, um, we had to create our own um, entity based on, on the tax rules, and we've always had their support. Um, but I was one of the early um, folks involved in that. So back in around 2010, um, uh, Dr. Ken Lede and Dr. Ron Linden kind of decided we're going to make this Canadian chapter, and, and I jumped on board uh, in the early days as treasurer and secretary and, and, uh, and now I'm back. <laughs> um, so they, they've been going now for over 10 years. And, um, and recently I came back to serve another term as, as secretary. Uh, and they are involved in not only, um, medical research for the use of hyperbaric oxygen, but also in diving research as well. So they support both. And so, um, it was just kind of a natural for me to become involved with them because it's where scientists and, and physicians present their research. Um, and, and it, it's provided a lot of really good collaborations for me um, and mentors as well in the industry. So, What are some of the challenges that you see for hyperbaric medicine and research in Canada? Ah, um, well, um, for hyperbaric medicine, and research in Canada, um, well, hyperbaric medicine in general is is very difficult to conduct um, because there is um, no IP to protect. Like it's it's not a pill where somebody is is going to make money off the sale of that pill. Um, you know, there, I guess there's some money in in the sale of the chamber and some money in the in the oxygen that's used, but really as far as as doing clinical trials the funding behind those clinical trials are are it's not going to come from a company that's trying to develop something to bring to market whereas a lot of drugs that are developed the the company that's developing it is going to pay for a lot of that initial research to be conducted um, in order to bring their their technology to market um, so so that's one of the uh, big hurdles that hyperbaric medicine has is, is the lack of funding. Where, where do you get that funding? Um, it, it's also, um, 
a form of medicine that up until recently has really struggled to have legitimacy amongst the mainstream medical community. Um, it, uh, it has suffered from being seen as kind of like a little bit of a snake oil, um, that, that there's no good science behind it. But, um, in fact, uh, there are 14 indications that have very good science or, or evidence behind their efficacy. Um, and now in Canada, actually just this year, the Royal College of Physicians has created a diploma program. So hyperbaric medicine in Canada, as of now, is a, a recognized distinct specialty. So I think that will help with the legitimacy of hyperbaric medicine and maybe help move us forward. Um, because there's, there's definitely a lot of other indications that uh, are deserving of investigation. Um, Things like uh, colitis, Crohn's, fibromyalgia, stroke, traumatic brain injuries. These are all areas that, that there's quite a decent amount of research, but it's not at the level yet that we need to see it as an acceptable indication and covered by our medical services plans. So um, I think that's a big stumbling block. Uh, in diving research, um, funding. Funding is a big portion. So who's going to pay for diving research? We have the military that's interested um, and the Divers Alert Network. Uh, but outside of the military and Divers Alert Network, it's the big funding agencies. It's really hard to to go after research for such a small segment of the population that uh, it's just uh, it, it. So definitely funding is 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 a big barrier for both hyperbaric medicine and diving research. Thank you for all of that, Sherry. We're going to take a short surface interval and we'll be back with more from Sherry Ferguson. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. Reviews are one of the best ways to help others find the podcast. This episode of Dive In The Podcast is brought to you by Torpedo Rays Scuba. You can find them online at torpedorays.com. They've been teaching Canada how to dive for 25 years and are a proud sponsor of this podcast. If you're in Atlantic Canada and want to take a course or see the shop, stop in and see us in Dartmouth and check out the huge selection of scuba, apnea, surf gear, and much more. Dive tours are available for locals and visitors to experience all that our ocean playground has to offer. TorpedoRays.com has a vast selection of dive gear at unbeatable prices with free shipping available in Canada and quick shipping throughout North America. So visit TorpedoRays.com or stop in the shop and you might even see one of us there. Welcome back to Dive in the Podcast. We're speaking with Sherry Ferguson, the Director of the Environmental Medicine and Physiology Unit at Simon Fraser University. So, um, Sherry, as the Director of the uh, Environmental Medicine and Physiology Unit, can you tell us a little bit about what the unit is and what it does? Sure. Uh, so the unit itself is very unique in Canada, um, actually anywhere in the world, but uh, specifically in Canada. It, it is a research chamber um, that is comprised of three separate locks or three separate areas. Uh, it's got an entry lock, which can act as an elevator to, to move personnel in and out without the main area changing pressure. It has the main lock, which can accommodate up to uh, nine people, including one of them being a staff member, so eight participants plus a staff member. Um, 
And, uh, and that's a dry area. It, it's got benches for people to sit on, or it can be uh, converted into sleeping accommodation and can sleep four people in bunks. And then it has a third part to the chamber, a third room that can be flooded, uh, which really makes it unique in that we can do in-water research. So we can replicate the ocean environment, uh, including a current, uh, making it cold, wet, dark, um, uh, and, and uh, we can simulate up to a thousand feet of seawater. Uh, and we can also, which is unique to us, we have double doors. We can simulate altitude as well. So we can go up to the atmospheric pressure of Mars. Uh, we don't take humans that high, obviously, um, but we have taken folks up to uh, around 33 to 34,000 feet of altitude, which is the pressure uh, of the uh, spacesuit when the astronauts go on spacewalks. Wow. wow. And how did the EMPU first come about? It was several researchers that who were in what was then called the the Faculty of Kinesiology, but it's it's or the School of Kinesiology, which is now the Faculty of Biomedical Physiology and Kinesiology. Um, so several faculty members got together and through a grant from NSERC, which is our Natural Science and Engineering. Uh, research council, um, they received funding to, to build this unit. And so it opened in, uh, I think 1981 was the first year that it opened. Um, and, uh, at that time had a, a suite of, of, um, researchers and staff that were involved and many changes over the years and, and quite a bit of dwindling down of use, uh, with people retiring and not being replaced. Um, so we've definitely seen some some times where it's actually being questioned the validity and of keeping such a research facility open. Uh, is it really worth the cost? Um, and uh, I, I passionately believe that yes, it is worth the cost. That it would be a great disservice to Canada to lose the ability to train future scientists and to conduct research that you really can't conduct in a, a hospital. Uh, type hyperbaric unit that you need a research unit to do. So, um, but that's how it came about. Yeah, it was uh, originally for for uh, basic uh, human physiology. You, you mentioned earlier about sort of presenting a business plan about how you might run the, the unit. And and there's a lot of funding partners uh, that I've seen um, from Air Canada to WorkSafe BC to collaborations with, with the U.S. Office of Naval Research. Um, what is it that allows you to form so many partnerships uh, at, at the EMPU? Uh, some of it's, uh, you know, right place, right time, uh, or simply because there's no other option if you want that that type of research done. Um, as in the case of Air Canada, they wanted to do that research in Canada. We were the only place to really go. Um so, so sometimes it's just the capability uh, brings people to us. And then other times it's... Um, it's it's working hard to uh, solicit that those funds and and writing research proposals and grant applications and and convincing folks that you have some really good research ideas and that you'll be able to to see them through to completion. Um, I think having an idea is is one thing, but actually figuring out how you're going to do it and executing it and completing uh, right through to the end that's that's a whole other thing. Um, and then once you have a track record of being able to complete these projects, then that certainly helps with getting more projects in the future. Um, so I, I've, I've been lucky that some folks uh, early on in my career um, 
you know, took a chance and, and funded some research for me. Um, uh, I, I was lucky enough to receive some, some awards to uh, allow me to have the finances to do some pretty big studies early on. And, um, and now because I've got the track record with them, it, it's created more research opportunities that we're now just starting into. And the EMPU offers a range of courses. So are there any available to those like worth considering for a keen recreational diver or a scuba professional? Ah, well, okay, we have one. It's not really a course, but what we do offer, and it, it's it was temporarily on hold due to COVID, but we really want to get back at it, um, is that we do offer an educational evening for anybody that's a certified diver that would like to come into the lab and go into a chamber, feel what it's like to be in a chamber. We take them down to 165 feet of seawater. So lots of laughing and giggling and narcosis <laughs> happening, um, but also a planned decompression with oxygen on the way up. So, um, you know, it's a good chance for folks that haven't done decompression diving before to understand, you know, the stops that are made, how long they take, why we do them. And then we, we ask them to stick around for one hour after for a Ben's watch, just to make sure that everybody's doing well before we we send them off. And so at that time, they're kind of a captive audience for me. So I can give them a little bit of a talk that I hope promotes them to be safer divers and so that we see less incidences going on. That's really cool. I would, uh, if it were me, I would totally take advantage of that evening. (laughs) Come check it out. It sounds really cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And um, I I try to take it as a, a an opportunity to teach folks more about diving physiology and what we do know and what we don't know and what's currently being looked at. Um, uh, you know, the goal of the evening is not only to have a lot of fun, but to to walk away, um, hopefully, as safer divers. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that definitely sounds like an attractive offer. As we try to become safer divers, I think one of the things that uh, we have a little bit of understanding about is nitrogen narcosis. Uh, so from your research background, uh, we're hoping you might be able to explain to us a little bit more about this from the perspective of a hyperbaric researcher. Oh, that is such a tough question because <laughs> honestly, the answer is we don't know. Um, that That's still one of the great mysteries is really trying to figure out uh, like on a, a cellular basis, like what exactly is happening when narcosis uh, occurs. Um, and, and we don't know that if, if we could figure that out, then we could figure out a strategy to mitigate narcosis, which ultimately would, would be preferable. If we could have people working deep where they don't have to rely on helium, uh, which is a finite and expensive resource in order to have a clear mind, or, um, if we, we didn't have to worry about, um, d- uh, divers making mistakes because of, of the narcosis and, and, and risky situations happening under the influence. Uh, if we could just find out what's happening, then maybe we could say, okay, you take this pill and it won't happen or something. Uh, wouldn't that be ideal? But, um, to get to that point, we, we're still kind of looking at it, um, really all the way back to, to a cellular basis. And so one of the side projects, and this is one that I haven't seen through to completion yet, is um, looking at how uh, cells um, communicate and what happens to a cell. Uh, cells, cells send electrical impulses based on the movement of electrically charged ions that go in and out of a cell. 
And if we can look at those cells under hyperbaric conditions and see what changes under those conditions with the movement of those ions in and out, then perhaps we can eventually one day really understand what's what's disturbing the signals and what's causing the narcosis. So uh, that was a research project that I, I started a long time ago working with uh, Dr. J. Dean down at the University of South Florida, and we've been attempting to do what's called patch clamping in a hyperbaric environment. Um, and uh, he's he's come a long way with his understanding of uh, oxygen toxicity seizures, um, but uh, the narcosis one is still one that we're further investigating, both on the cellular basis, but also understanding uh, what parts of the brain are affected first and, and performance and, and um, all of that helps as well. It's understanding uh, you know, is it the memory? Is it uh, executive function? Is it um, coordination? What what gets affected first, and um, and and at what pressures, and and what gas mixes? Hmm. Yeah, that that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, I think I'm going to have to probably go to school for a little bit longer to figure out everything that you just <laughs> talked about in in that short answer. Uh, but I was wondering, uh, two things come to mind. Uh, what what is patch clamping when you mentioned that, and and what are right. the next steps that you see in this research? So um, patch clamping is a way that we can take a single cell and we can put an electrode inside of that cell to measure the electrical potential inside. So, you know, what the voltage is. And then we can have an electrode as a reference on the outside of the cell, uh, just in the, the solution that's holding the cell. And, um, and then we can, we can measure um, how when when you apply pressure, so it, when the when the cell is exposed to high pressures of different gases, how it changes the opening and closing of these channels that allow the movement of these charged ions in and out. So as ions move in and out, that electrical potential inside the cell will change to be more positive uh, and eventually negative again, and it repolarizes. So if we we know already what how a cell um, what its behavior is, but by looking at what the behavior of that cell is under different hyperbaric conditions and different gas pressures, um, we can maybe isolate which one of those um, channels is being affected. So the channels would be for different things like potassium, calcium, sodium. These are all the um, ions that carry charges, positive and negative charges that move in and out of a cell. So patch clamping really is just measuring the electrical potential from the inside to the outside of the cell and watching it change and seeing kind of seeing how it changes when we expose it to traditionally different drugs. So when, when people mm -hmm. are developing drugs, they're going to do patch clamping to see how it affects the cell. Um, so now we're looking at, at gas pressure as a drug. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's that's actually a kind of a novel use of a, an established practice. Then to to dig into what you guys are trying to determine here with narcosis, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you actually got the bends during your nitrogen narcosis research. Are you able to tell us about that experience? Oh, absolutely. Um, so that wasn't with the patch clamping because the patch clamping I was doing in a very tiny chamber and I was on the outside. But we were doing some um, human research where they had different tasks at different depths and different gas pressures. And um, one of the conditions was to 57 meters uh, breathing air. And so that's a, it's a fairly deep dive. And uh, the tasks would take somewhere around 20 minutes to complete. So 
it would put us on the exceptional exposures table for the DCIM tables. When when we're doing research, we're 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 following occupational diving um, uh, regulations because I, I I am a worker in that case, so I do have to follow what the working regulations are. So that means we plan our dives according to the DCIM tables here in Canada. So um, the dive was executed perfectly. Uh, It was the same profile that I had been doing for months, uh, often several times a week for months. um, And without any incidents, um, this particular day, I I really, I I think there's a bit of complacency that happened um, and a little bit more focus on getting results and, and not on me as being part of that, uh, that, uh, the part of the equation there. And I had, um, I was flying back the night before from a conference in Toronto and my flight got delayed and delayed and delayed. And, and finally it, uh, it left very late. Um, uh, the airline was great. They upgraded me, um, to first class <laughs> and, uh, I was able to get a pod so I could sleep a little bit, but along with that first class upgrade came a nice glass of whiskey before I went to sleep in that pod. And, um, and, and I didn't have enough sleep. I had some alcohol the night before and uh, probably got into my home here in Vancouver at you know three o'clock in the morning and then got up and, and went to work. So the fatigue um, combined with the dry environment, combined with some alcohol, combined with lack of nutrition, like I really can't say there's a smoking gun but I wasn't at my physical best that day. And um, so that's my hindsight of, of thinking what happened that day. I think that was just enough to put me a little behind uh, that when I went on a provocative dive, uh, which I call it provocative, but it's, it's really not out of the reach of what a lot of technical divers are doing on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was enough to just put me over the edge so that my body physiology that day just decided, nope, it wasn't going to deal with the bubbles at the rate that I was asking it to. So I, I reached the surface and um, removed my, I had an oxygen mask on at that point because we were doing um, oxygen decompression and it was in a dry chamber and I, I reached the surface. And as I took the mask off, I realized that my arm was a, a little sore. I felt like there was a bruise on my upper arm Um I wondered if I had leaned against the, the gas manifold or, or what had happened to give me that kind of bruised feeling. Um, so we were all exiting the chamber and the, the hyperbaric physician who was present for the research uh, was checking all of the subjects to see if everyone was feeling okay. And he kind of looked at me and said, and you're fine. And I said, actually, I'm, I'm not sure I'm fine. Um, I feel like my arm's bruised and, and I don't recall hitting it. And when I rolled up my sleeve to take a look, uh, there was like a, a little white patch there. Um, uh, you'd call it an ischemic patch. So it's just like a like when you push your finger on a sunburn and it turns white, um, it takes a little bit of time for the color to come back. Mine was like that, but I hadn't pushed anything against there. Um, so we, we took note of the size of it and, and kind of thought, well, let's give it a little bit and see what happens. And uh, we had some some blood draws that needed to be done. And, and that's when I noticed my hands were very shaky. Um, uh, so much so that I, I couldn't do blood draws on the subjects. And I had to ask someone to step in for me because I, I was jittery. And uh, and then uh, then cutis marmorata. So it's a very distinct marbling of the skin set in 
in the upper arm and across my back. It started heading across my shoulder. And um, it, it set in really quick. And it was, it, and you could almost watch it expand. Like it was, it was moving across uh-huh. my skin quite, quite quickly. And um, so at that point, uh, we, we decided, okay, we, we've got to do a treatment. Uh, I've obviously got decompression sickness. So I've, I've got the cutest murmur out of happening. Um, and we were just gearing up to, to decide the roles of everybody and who's going in with me and how we're going to do that. Um, so we learned a very valuable lesson that day that the plan should be made ahead, assuming someone is going to get bent rather than mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> discussing that after. Um, but uh, I, I had just done a very long chamber ride and I wanted to run to the washroom before I jumped in for another very long chamber ride. Uh, you know, going on a treatment table six is, uh, without any extensions is a minimum of 288 minutes. That's, that's a long time that you're sitting inside a chamber. So um, I went to the washroom where I could flush a toilet <laughs> and uh, coming back, um, the choke set in and I was having problems with inhalation and, and tightness uh, uh, an ex- a feeling in my chest that I just never had experienced ever before. And, and I, I knew instantly that this, this was the chokes. Uh, and I came back and, and spoke to a hyperbaric physician and I said, this isn't just skin bends. I, I am experiencing the chokes. Um, he consulted with the medical director at uh, our local hospital uh, hyperbaric unit who had flown back with me the night before from the conference and uh, he needed to clear me for a differential diagnosis that um, we're fairly certain that I was bent and that this was, uh, you know, a pulmonary decompression sickness. But pulmonary decompression sickness is, is quite rare. One uh, to 2% of decompression cases will be pulmonary. And having just flown the night before, there was also the chance that I had had a deep vein thrombosis, which could have dislodged and gone to my lungs and had similar. Um, similar manifestations and symptoms. So uh, the decision to transport me to the hospital for a CT scan prior to um, putting me into the chamber and possibly treating me for the wrong diagnosis was made. And uh, so the CT scan confirmed it was decompression sickness and and not a pulmonary embolism. And uh, I did my my five hours in the chamber and they fixed me up and... um, I, I couldn't dive for a week, or sorry, for a month afterwards um, before I was cleared to to return to diving. But um, no, no long term effects as a result. So I'm all healthy now. But it was uh, it was definitely concerning at the time. I, I felt very sick. My blood pressure was dropping, and I was quite sick at the time. Yeah, that's quite the experience, and I'm I'm glad you're you're okay. And but I guess it also it makes me think a little bit about. You know the setting in which that occurred to you was literally in a medical setting with a chamber and 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 the so that the expertise available and I can't imagine what it must be like if you know somebody's out on a dive boat or at a dive site that that kind of changes the equation quite quickly, right? Absolutely, and from my own experience, and I I can only speak from that, um, the availability of supplemental oxygen on the surface while I was waiting for my treatment to begin um, was huge. Like if I stopped that supplemental oxygen for any reason, um, my blood pressure would start dropping again. I would feel very sick, um, uh, spots in front of my eyes, things like that. Um, so it, it really drove home to me 
the importance that divers get the training in oxygen administration and and have those kits, um, it, especially if there's going to be any travel delay to get treatment. Because although it's rare to get the pulmonary, if you do get it, that oxygen may make all the difference. So I think it's something, you know, in hindsight, I, I think, why do we wait so long to train divers in oxygen administration? Why don't we train them right at the open water level, how to operate an oxygen kit and make them available from the dive shops for divers to take to the dive site with them. If they use up the oxygen, charge them for it. But um, it's, you know, if, if they're, they'll, they'll be buying training, they'll be safer because they have the oxygen with them and probably buy some kits off you too. Some of the divers that are, you know, diving in more remote areas would, would probably appreciate being able to buy kits. So I think it's something that we, we undervalue when we don't, promote as much as we should. That's that's an interesting perspective. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your your masses research, uh, which was titled, you know, the, the focus of the sudden drop in oxygen partial pressure on the function of heart function during ascent. Um, mm-hmm. what, what interested you specifically in this topic and, and what did you learn from your research? Well, I had a few uh, friends pass away who were very experienced technical instructors, instructor trainers, um, and the story was the same amongst, uh, their, uh, deaths is that, um, it was the end of the dive. Um, they were ascending to their decompression stops and, um, had difficulty breathing, uh, as indicated to their partners with hand signals that, you know, they were experiencing something going on with their breathing in, in that area, their chest. And, um, uh, for one of them, um, he, he actually blew his decompression stops to go to the stur- surface. Uh, and for the level of experience that he had as an instructor trainer, for him to have blown those decompression stops, he was definitely um, thinking he had a better chance of living getting to the surface than he did staying underwater. Um, and so we don't always know what the cause of death is because often what happens is folks get to the surface and uh, are having such trouble that they don't establish positive buoyancy and then go back under. And then it gets ruled as a drowning mm-hmm. um, because ultimately drowning is the cause of death. But because so many of these were happening at the end of the dive, I wondered how much um, the possibility of a cardiac event could have been or uh, a, uh, something called flash pulmonary edema, which can can happen to divers as well. Um, and so, in particular, the ascent phase, I was wondering why is that seems to be when these incidences happen. Um, and anecdotally, I, I talked to more and more people uh, who were um, either involved in a dive where someone had uh, had a fatality or, or knew of someone that had died in a fatality. And, and the ascent phase kept coming up that it was at the end of the dive that these things were happening. So um, it it posed the question in my mind. Well, what's going on? Is is that high oxygen pressure that you experience underwater when it's dropping? Does that contribute to something that's happening? It's stressful for the heart, or is that you know what it, 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 what's happening there? So that was my my initial question. Was that that's one thing I know is happening is that the pressure of oxygen is dropping as you ascend. So I thought, well, what happens if we stop the oxygen pressure from dropping mm. on ascent. Um, and and so that was the first question was, does the oxygen pressure 
dropping at the end of a dive contribute somehow to a cardiac event. And so I designed a, a research study in the in the chamber where using a rebreather um, controlled from the outside, I was at the, the operator panel, I could clamp the oxygen pressure so that as the diver came up from five atmospheres where the partial pressure of oxygen is a 1.0, um, I, I keep it at that percentage all the way up, which means I'm reducing the nitrogen content and increasing the oxygen content so that the partial pressure remains a 1.0. So by the time the, the diver reaches the surface, they're, they're just breathing 100% oxygen uh, to keep that oxygen pressure um, consistent. And so um, that, was, that was my initial reason for wanting to look at it. And uh, of course, it, 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 I didn't really answer my question directly through the research, but what I did do is come up with a lot more questions that need investigating as a result. That's the, the joy of science, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's true. Follow the evidence. <laughs> you just have to keep going and, and see where it goes. I, I had an, uh, another question, but another piece of research where um, uh, your team examined the impact of, of hypoxia on, on brain activity and, and how that might lead to mitigating hypoxic impairment. Um, and I think you had mentioned that might be useful for rebreather divers. Um, I didn't quite understand uh, the research myself, but I was wondering maybe you could maybe put that into lay, layperson's term for us. Um I hope I can. Uh, so <laughs> uh, we've done a couple studies. So the first one that we did was uh, with uh, both mild and uh, more severe hypoxia and just doing um, different psychological tests to see which area of the brain was kind of shutting down first or, or most impaired by the hypoxia. And so that was a study done uh, uh, maybe a decade ago, um, a collaboration with uh, Dr. Diara Asmaro, who is a um, who, who does a lot of that uh, uh, psychology kind of testing and uh, neuropsych. And, um, and then a follow-on to that was a, a student who decided he wanted to combine neuropsych and um, build on that research, and um, in particular looking at attention and um, mild hypoxic impairment. And so he designed, um, and this is why I said I hope I can explain this one to you because it's his study, but I, I'm on his committee. And this is his PhD research that he's working on right now. And he's he designed a way for us to have participants in the chamber where we went to altitude and they became hypoxic. And he was recording uh, what's called EEG. So it's um, recording the electrical um, uh, potentials in the brain by putting like almost like if you could picture a swim cap with 64 little electrodes that connect mm -hmm. onto the scalp, uh, much the same as when you get an ECG done. It's it's just a, a electrical recording, and so that way he could map um, changes in electrical impulses in these uh, what they call uh, potentials uh, evoke they evoke different potentials and he could compare how they were normally and then compare them during hypoxia. But he took it one step further and he's also comparing what we call normobaric hypoxic hypoxia. So normobaric hypoxia, normobaric meaning normal pressure. So we didn't change the pressure, but we changed the fraction of gas. So we reduced the fraction of oxygen they were breathing, brought down the percentage. Mm -hmm. Whereas hypobaric hypoxia, we don't change the 
percentage of gas, but by going to altitude, the partial pressure of oxygen reduces. So in both cases, the partial pressure is the same. The difference is the amount of nitrogen and the, and the pressure, the total pressure surrounding. Uh, he was interested in comparing those two because traditionally uh, pilots train for hypoxia awareness by going into a, a hypobaric chamber and exposing themselves to low pressure. And, and then they can recognize what their individual signs and symptoms are and how they feel when they're hypoxic. Um, due to safety, so the concern of causing decompression sickness, because decompression sickness, a lot of people don't realize this, is not just something that divers can suffer from. But if, if you're in aviation or an astronaut where you expose yourself to a reduction in pressure, a, a fast reduction in pressure, that will create bubbles as well because you're reducing the mm -hmm. pressure, which means gas has to come out of solution. So um, I'm losing, losing my train of thought here. So no, I'm following. Um, it's good. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so a lot of places were concerned about giving uh, pilots decompression sickness by taking them rapidly to to an altitude high enough. So instead, they they will combine um, a hypobaric experience, but to a very low altitude and switch the gas fraction. That's that's currently being done in our Canadian forces and and some other places around the world. Um, or they'll just give them a hypoxic mix um, without changing pressure at all. Just give them a hypoxic gas mix. And he wanted to know, um, is that going to make a difference in the training? Is that really going to affect them the same? Is that going to affect the same areas of the brain in the same way? Uh, are, are, we, are we really training them to, to recognize hypoxia? Can, can that be an, uh, a substitute? So, so this is what prompted him to, to look at it. So not just answering the questions of what's going on with the EEG and blood flow to the brain, but also is there a difference? between total pressure change and just fraction of gas change. Um, so that's what his research is focusing on. And now you're probably going to want to know some answers. And <laughs> hmm, yeah, I, I don't have them at the tip of my tongue because it is his research, not mine. But um, hang on one second, because I, I think he did come up with some conclusions that he presented recently. Um, and, and he, he was actually showing a, a difference between the two um, conditions, that, that, that they weren't quite the same. Now, sometimes when you see those differences, uh, same thing happened in my narcosis research, and you go, ah, look, they're not the same. <laughs> and then you really carefully consider what you did. You realize it's because you had a flaw in the way that you designed your research. So definitely in my narcosis research, which was one of my early designed research studies, I overlooked something which I only realized in hindsight um, in that they were wearing a mask to deliver the, hy the hypoxic gas um, or normoxic gas at, at depth, sorry. Uh, they had to put a mask on because it was it, we were changing the fraction of the gases and they didn't have the mask on for the other two exposures. And even though the mask is relatively small, it did create an increased dead airspace. Hmm. And uh, if you think back to your dive training, like when you have a snorkel and we talk about dead airspace, um, what happens is you can build up carbon dioxide from dead airspace. So carbon dioxide can have a role in in cognitive functions. So was that, you know, how much of our results that we saw were influenced by 
perhaps a slightly different amount of carbon dioxide. So in his research, what he realized was that when he changed the fraction of gas, it was more of a dramatic change. You went from 21% to, I can't remember his percentage, but let's say it was something like you know 12% or something quite rapidly, um, as opposed to changing pressure in the chamber, which takes a couple of minutes to change to that uh, altitude. So he, he's going to go back and reanalyze his research to, to look at the same time point in, in both of them, as opposed to just saying, here's the start and let's compare. He now has to look at two minutes later uh, for the uh, fraction change in order to have the same level of impairment right. potentially. So um, it'll be really interesting to see because I think what, what it, the implications it'll have um, in diving for rebreather divers uh, and potentially for um, folks that are designing the heads-up displays, the computers, those type of things are um, how attention is affected at different levels of hypoxia and can they create better warning systems, better gear that displays information in such a way that during that impairment, the right information is being recognized. Um, Hypoxia causes... um, task focusing where you can ignore other important information because you get so focused on one thing. So how mm-hmm. do we make sure you're focusing on the right thing um, if that happens? And, and how do we work with divers that potentially could be impaired due to hypoxia so that they get that information quickly and, and know how to respond? That's that's really neat. Wow. Every time I think rebreathers can get any more complicated, <laughs> I find that they do. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just going to say, as you're describing that research, all I can think, and this is from, you know, other uh, interviews we've had is like Shearwater and Gabriel Panita need to uh, contact you and, and have a discussion about about this work because it seems pretty applicable to us as divers. Because I've been in that situation where, like you say, you get like hyper-focused because of a thing that you're doing and, and like it's, you're impaired and, I, and I'm aware that I'm impaired and I'm looking at my computer going like, I, I know the information I need to look at here. Uh, and I keep looking at it, but I'm not registering it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, where do I go with that? Right. And so I think it's really important. Right. And can they design it to give you just the information that you yep. need? Like, does it right. simply just have to say like a big arrow pointing up? And, right. and that's it. Forget exactly. all the other information right. until you acknowledge, okay, I'm going up. I don't, yeah. I don't know what the answer is, but uh, but certainly um, researchers like uh, Evan Hutchian, who is the PhD candidate that's doing that research, and uh, Dr. Diera Asmaro, who they, they specialize in that cognitive side of things, um, can certainly work with companies. And, and Shearwater is one of our favorite companies. They, they've done quite a bit of um, equipment research in our lab in the past when they were coming up with some of their diagnostics transmitters mm-hmm. um, our, because our, our chamber is, is a wet chamber we um, we have this little guy we call him Jamaican Jimmy he looks like R2D2 uh, he wears dive gear for us um, he got called Jamaican Jimmy because everybody would come in and go what Jamaican and so oh. it just became what Jamaican what Jamaican Jamaican he's Jamaican and he became okay. Jamaican Jimmy he's actually got a little tattoo on his arm that says that it's engraved and so we can put dive gear on him and he connects to a breathing machine and that breathing machine can simulate uh, a human breathing. So it can uh, change the tidal volume, which is like how deep of a breath um, 
he can take so he can expand his lungs as big as we want him to um, and then breathing frequency so how fast he's breathing in and out so that the depth and the and the speed can be controlled um, but also the the gas gets humidified as he exhales it so it's just okay. like a, a person's breath and it it creates carbon dioxide as well so that as it goes through the loop um, if you're testing a rebreather it can test the the capabilities of a scrubber because it'll have to scrub that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it gives us the ability to test diving equipment, including transmitters for computers, uh, regulators for uh, work of breathing, and, and also you know some of that EN testing that you have to do in order to put a, a rebreather onto the market. We can perform those tests to those standards in our in our wet pot, where we can rapidly, where you wouldn't want to put a person in and suddenly take them from 200 feet to the surface in 30 seconds. We can do that with Jamaican Jimmy. So that's, that's pretty cool. That saves bypassing some yeah. ethics there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> ethics is the hardest part of my job, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have a question cause we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the, so that cognitive ability to maybe recognize something like hypoxia. And, and this is a nagging thing because so I'm a, I'm a free diver as well as a rebreather diver. And as a free diver, I, I train for hypoxic and, and hypercapnic tolerance. And I've, I've always wondered whether increasing tolerance to, to both these conditions, if I'm actively training, and then if I go on a CCR dive, like does that give me an edge in recognizing a potential symptom or does that mask it? And, and I know that's kind of an out there question, but I'm just wondering if you had any educated guesses on that. Well, from... From what I can recall from some of the work from Diamond, uh, Dr. Simon Mitchell, he's he he was looking specifically at that question. Could can divers kind of like um, you know how with narcosis, the more you expose yourself to narcosis, the better you seem to perform during mm-hmm. narcosis. Um, he you know the question was if you expose yourself to hypoxia, can you perform better in a hypoxic right. environment? And and we're not seeing that really. No. Okay. Um, and another dangerous part about hypoxia is the one of the first areas of the brain to become impaired is the part of the brain that warns you something's wrong. So uh, your your self criticism, your self awareness, uh, it, it really kind of goes first. Uh, actually, I had a class once. They were they were um, learning to be chamber operators, hyperbaric chamber operators, and uh, we we actually have them do some flights as well as diving, and they get to go in for the flight and feel what it's like to be hypoxic. And, uh, and we were telling them that one of the side effects of hypoxia is overconfidence. You actually feel like you're doing really well and mm. when you're, you're absolutely not. And that class created class t-shirts that said, um, uh, something along those lines. I'm, I'm not, uh, oh, what did they say? Something about, um, oh gosh, now I'm, I'm losing this. It, it was about, uh, I, I'm, hy- I, I'm, I'm not, uh, hypoxic i'm just overconfident or something along those lines uh, i i didn't quite have it right and i'm sure it wasn't very politically correct or something it was something about being a being a being a bit of an asshole or something but it's it's uh, trying to say that it wasn't hypoxia causing it it was it was them just right. the personality of being overconfident um but yeah we you know uh 
and then also the, the impairment of the memory afterwards. So somebody who thinks they performed really well, uh, and then you show them how, how poorly they did and they have no memory of, of not doing well. They really felt like they were mastering the situation. So that's really a, a huge danger in hypoxia. Mm-hmm. In, and, and I think, um, in some of the fatalities that I've, I've reviewed the, the gear and the dive profiles of is, is you, you sometimes wonder if the, if that overconfidence is what's causing it. Um, you know, a diver running out of oxygen, um, but continuing the dive, um, maybe overconfident that they could somehow be ahead of that curve of the oxygen mm-hmm. dropping too low because they're ascending. So instead of aborting, they decide to still meander their way up knowing that the, you know, uh, anyway, but yeah. sometimes I think those decisions maybe are what lead to the fatality because they were a little more confident in their ability to get out of the situation. It's, it's interesting because it's the, the two things you described there. It's, it's exactly what, what happens when you black out when you're free diving. It's that, that euphoric, Oh, this is all fine. And then the review of the camera later, you go like, yeah, no, not even close. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting. I, I finally have sort of an answer to that question. So thank you. Yeah, it's 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 an area that's really interesting, and I, I have a feeling that our lab will be doing a lot more research in that area in the future. Sherry, where can people find you online? Uh, well, the lab does have a website. It's not great. Um, we are actively looking for a new member of our lab. So if if there's someone out there that would like to join a lab and and look after things like student registrations and website and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we do have a website. It's, it's sfu.ca slash EMPU. And that uh, that does kind of show you a little bit about our lab and, and the courses we offer. But it's it's in desperate need of, of more updating um, so that we can kind of show some of the research that we are currently doing and have done in the past. And I, I realize that's one of the areas I'm weak in is, is self-promotion. I'm really terrible in self-promotion and I need to get better at that. I'm actually in business school right now, um, uh, taking a course on the commercialization of science and technology. And I'm, I'm realizing uh, I'm, I seem to be a better scientist than I am a business person these days. So I've, I've really got to focus on some of that. Um, but also I am on Facebook. So, uh, and, uh, and I do accept folks to uh, follow me on Facebook that want to see what we're doing with the lab. And the lab has a Facebook page as well um, that you could search out. And I think it's just called Hyperbaric Dive SFU or something like that, um, because we originally wanted to capture the divers to, to see what we were doing. So um, any of those ways you can find me. Awesome. Sherry, what keeps you diving? Oh, what keeps me diving? I'm trying to think of what the number one question is because I want to say the people, like really the the social side. I, I the the best connections I've ever made have been through my my work and through the divers that I've met and um, diverse and exciting and interesting people. And uh, and when you think about how you want to spend your time outside of work, um, it's it's with those people that have the same uh, passion for the underwater world. So. I, as much as I want to say what keeps me in diving is is the discovery of all the new creatures and everything that's down there, I think it's still the people. I I, I love that it's become the connection, the social connection to uh, to the folks. 
That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for for coming on and and sharing your experience, and uh, thank you for sharing sort of like a window into this world of of hyperbaric research. And I'm sure that's something that all divers of all walks of life uh, will find something of interest in. So thank you very much for coming on here and, and giving us your time. That's my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. And the last thing I would like to end with is that if anyone uh, is currently working as an occupational diver on the west coast of Canada, specifically in seafood harvesting or as a scientific diver, we are looking for volunteers right now. Our current research project is on the use of dive computers for occupational diving. And we need to record divers who are actively working in seafood harvesting and science diving. Um, And we're looking for volunteers to wear tracking devices so that we can collect data and uh, better analyze to look at future use of computers. So please contact me if you're in that segment and you'd like to volunteer. Contact me at uh, S. Ferguson. So S for Sherry and Ferguson is F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N at SFU.ca. Well, that was fantastic. I quite enjoyed hearing all that information and how uh, how it links up with the ability to to bring science and uh, technology into practical applications of diving. First up tonight is Think Blue. So let's head over to Nick. So we've talked about microplastics on here before. And as uh, divers and most of you are aware that plastic waste in the ocean kind of breaks down into tiny particles called microplastics as uh, as they get as plastics get weathered in the ocean um and i guess everybody here is familiar with you know the large pieces of plastic that are documented in like animal entanglements and you know things like fish and cetaceans and turtles uh, will ingest them and it'll kill and maim marine creatures we've talked about microplastics on think blue in the past um in the sense that they're also vehicles for all sorts of uh, nasty chemicals and compounds that um, are attached to plastic. So when they get ingested, not only do you get the physical plastic, but you also get leaching of these chemical components, which makes the problem so much worse. Um, and it does all sorts of weird things, like it impairs shell selection in hermit crabs. It can cause aneurysm in fish. It can weaken the ability for for muscles to hold onto rocks. So it does all these weird things. And I mean, that's just a little bit of the research. You, the more you look into it, the more effects of microplastics you find there. Um, and who here eats seafood? I've been known to eat it. You've been known to eat seafood. I do enjoy it. You do enjoy it. That's a strong no for me. Well, from the vegetarian, I imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> my, well, microplastics also work their way up the food chain, right? So as um, smaller organisms consume microplastics and bigger organisms eat those and they work their way up the food chain, eventually microplastics are found in things that we as humans humans consume. And um, there's some interesting Mm. and some rather disturbing research by South Korean scientists that was recently published in the Journal of Science of the Total Environment that um, they took uh, polystyrene microplastic particles and fed them to mice. And they they fed them different size particles. And those particles that were less than two micrometers in diameter actually were able to cross the blood-brain barrier into the brain of mice. And the blood-brain barrier is this amazing sort of layer of cells that uh, protects our brains because it it allows the passage of oxygen and important fluids, but it kind of keeps out all the nasty stuff out of the brain. But somehow, um, really small, tiny particles of microplastic can make it across that barrier in mice. And they found that um, when they fed these polystyrene particles to mice, um, in as little as seven days, these particles ended up in the 
the brain of the mice causing sort of immune and inflammatory responses in, in the brain cells. And then one of the things that cells do, they will sort of eat foreign matter, right, as a way of getting rid of it and trying to protect the organism. And actually, like in, in, um, in mice, it was actually causing cell death in those brain cells or in those cells in the brain that were eating those particles. So it really seems that, you know, the more we think about microplastics and this world that we've created, and the more we discover like the insidious consequences of the amount of plastic we use, um, we find out these really disturbing things. So um, I already don't tend to eat a lot of seafood because I find it has a lot of, you know, things like mercury in it or plastic or whatever the case might be. But uh, yeah, this is actually rather a little bit more disturbing. So I don't know where the research is going to go from there, but not a great sign. Mm -hmm. Not a great sign. I don't, I don't have a positive to end on that one. I'm sorry. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, like way to, way to bring the rain on the negativity there, Nick, but uh, it is a hard, hard truth. And sometimes we need to hear those actually to generate uh, change. And, and, you know, so I I do really appreciate you taking the time to look into that and, to bring it forward to us, um, you know, uh, I guess on the cheeky side of it, I, I could say this is not of concern to me because I'm a vegetarian and of course I'm not subject to this. <laughs> However, like, you know, on a, on a serious note, when you do look at that, there is a larger issue, right. That, uh, that it's pointing to, and that's that our mismanagement of the environment is, uh, is obviously whether it's direct or indirect, it's, it's going to impact uh, our evolution to a degree. Uh, and we don't know, I think you've pointed that out in, in other episodes. We don't actually know what the long-term effects of uh, these microplastics within our systems will be. And as a result of that, we may be you know, in a place where we're either going to see development of additional diseases that we've never thought about in, you know, in the past. And in this case, uh, if we are seeing crossover into, you know, into the brain through the blood-brain barrier, then what does that mean for potential... Uh, damage to the brain uh, and or uh, other issues that could surround it. So it, it, it's fascinating. It's uh, sobering. Uh, and yeah, appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Yeah, it's rather disturbing. Well, and there go my Friday night sushi plans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, why don't we head over Sorry. to uh, well, April? Well, ironically, you sushi is <laughs> plastic trays, so you know. That's right. Yeah, just, just eat the plastic tray while you're at it. I know. Yeah, I know. It's, it's the same thing now, right? It's just fish, plastic. It's all the same. Uh, I, th- I think we need to get away from this topic right now, and we need to go mm-hmm. chat with April and uh, get some great news about a dive girl from somewhere around the world. Yes. Dive girls around the world. So, 40-year-old men, how are your, your Instagrams <laughs> looking these days? Uh, pretty bad because I removed it. I was going to say, what, is, this, uh, is this like the interweb, some kind of Instagram thing? Does it bring you things? This is, where you, this is that, that one where you post the pictures on the line. Uh, mm, exactly. uh, right, right. And it yeah. comes back yeah. somehow. Okay. Tell me, child, what do you have? <laughs> exactly. Or as my mom would say, I, I got it offline. That's what okay. my mom always says. If she, <laughs> if she buys offline. something online, she says, I got it offline. Because All right. it's like Well, as soon off, as you take it off, off the internet, and online, it's offline, so I guess. she says, got it <laughs> offline. Anyhow, this week, my dive girl around the world is Scuba Sarah, who is uh, one of my favorite Instagram accounts to follow. Her name is Sarah Gautier. 
and she is known as Scuba Sarah on Instagram. She's a French Canadian and a scuba instructor. And she's making history by diving all seven continents in just five months to bring awareness to ocean conservation. And since water is everywhere and pollution is everywhere, she sees this as a great way to increase people's awareness and passion, not only for the ocean, but for the entire planet. Uh, she seems to be in Germany currently, but she travels around the world like crazy. So she's constantly everywhere. Uh, in her Instagram feed is a nice mix of warm water and cold water. And she's a super cool chick and also reps a uh, hot pink mask like myself. So mm. it's mm. Uh, she's a good follow, super cool girl. So yeah, that's my that's my dive girl this week. Sounds great. Uh, I think like I like the idea of the traveling around the world and bringing attention to these issues. So yeah, now how's she making this happen? Like how how is she doing this? Who's her marketing person? Oh man, I gotta figure out how to be a freaking Instagram influencer. Man, it just seems <laughs> like the life. It's uh, it's like I mean, some of her photos, if you look at her Instagram. Are just unreal. Now, I think she does some like underwater photography and videography because she seems to work on some different things. And you see like posts where um, there's like models underwater and she's like safety diving for them. Um, But she seems to live a super cool life. So I think I got to figure out uh, how to uh, be a little bit more like Scuba Sarah. (laughs) You'd like this one a bit too. Can you see this? Definitely got a pro camera rig. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. Nice. Batman underwater. Batman underwater. Yeah. I had one of those on the uh, the last time we did Blackbeards. Uh, Chris Power, one of our guests on the shows. And can you see what she's wearing in this one? See, X- Do you see the harness she's uh, wearing? XD. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Nice. <laughs> see? I like Picture her already. showing isn't very good for podcasts, but... <laughs> no. Yeah. I was going to say. But, uh, I like the XD. Yep. She's yep. super cool. Has cool. awesome ice diving photos, um, but also like some warm water, tropical stuff. And I just like too that she's like Canadian. I think that's mm-hmm. cool. So mm-hmm. anyhow, dive girl around the world this week, Scuba Sarah. Cool. There you go. Good selection there, April. Thanks for that. Thank you. Well, that does it for today's episode. I want to thank Sherry Ferguson for joining us on the podcast. While well, joining the three of you, I couldn't make the interview, but. Uh, <laughs> Here for the open and close and the segments with you guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks, Sherry. Uh, I look forward to listening to your interview when I edit here shortly. Always glad to have great guests. And I also am always glad to have Nick on the podcast. Thanks for being here tonight. Nick. Pleasure as always. I'm going to keep it short today. All right. And uh, April, thank you. Yep. Thanks for having me. I'll keep it short today, too. Okay. Mitt, keep it tall. Keeping it tall. Thank you. All right. Uh, it's been a blast. And yeah, I guess I'll return Nick's thank you from last week because, uh, yeah, did a fantastic job pulling these questions together for tonight's show. So, yeah, it's been been an absolute blast. Excellent. Well, don't forget, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash diveinpod and get some fun rewards for doing so. You can also visit our website, diveinpod.com, for all the links you need, episodes, merch, and so much more. On social media, you can follow me at iDiveOK. I'm at April Weikert. And you can find me at NicholasWinker.com. 
Next week, we speak to Michael Schwinghammer, an avid Halifax diver who's been using photogrammetry to document local wrecks. This episode of Dive in the Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Ray Scuba. If you made it this far, thank you for listening. 